Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another um, SACPA session, and Happy New Year to everybody. Um, thank you for joining us today. Um, my phone just went off. That's great. Um, during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we're very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Um, our speakers today are Sharon Sun and Carlo Dade on the topic of agri-food trade and export. Is there a growing market for Canada farm produce? As a director of the Trade and Investment Center, Carlos, Carlo Dade develops and leads research to promote growth and profitability in Western Canada's export economy. Carlo has a long history in international public policy, most recently as a senior fellow in the University of Ottawa School of International Development and Senior Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, DC. He is also a member of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. As the trade policy economist, at the Canada West Foundation, Sharon Sun specializes in international trade and trade infrastructure policy research. She has taken a lead on research projects, including the impact of Made in China 2025 on Canada trade and Western Canada export opportunities with Japan under CPTPP. Other work includes the impact of Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement on Western Canada, addressing Chinese non-tariff barriers on Canadian agricultural exports, among other trade agreements and trade-related issues. She is a PhD candidate at Carleton University here in Ottawa, focusing on Canada-China trade. So welcome to you both, and thank you for joining us. And um, Carlo, I believe you're going to start, so we look forward to your talk today. Well, thank you very much, Annalise. And it's great to be back here in uh, southern Alberta, in Lethbridge, uh, Bridge City, or as I call the town, uh, the city that hosts Two Guys Pizza. Uh, <laughs> I, I could tell that some folks down in Lethbridge are calling you to say, oh, God, not Carlo again. <laughs> Cut the line. Okay. On the trip down to Lethbridge, um, the Canada West Foundation was actually, next slide, was actually funded 50 years ago in Lethbridge. Uh, so the city has great importance to the foundation, but also, you know, the birth of Western Canada coming together as a region. Uh, to put its resources together in raising Western issues in Ottawa. Uh, increasingly, the mission of the center, the, the Trade and Investment Center, is to carry on deep research to formulate policies that articulate Western interests <clears throat> and present them not just to Ottawa, but increasingly Washington, D.C., Tokyo, all places where Western trade interests take us. Uh, that continues our, our mission today. Next slide. I'd like to thank um, particularly, well, first, Professor David Hill uh, for facilitating this talk. Thank you, David. 
It's always a pleasure to work with you. And also our good friend Trevor Lewington at Choose Lethbridge and the City of Lethbridge. You'll notice on the sponsors that the City of Lethbridge has come on with a small donation uh, to enable us to continue not just the general research we do, but the applied element of it, making it applicable to places like Lethbridge. We come down and talk to folks in the community, uh, talk to businesses, so that we can really understand, again, Western interests. So great to be back, and let's go into the, uh, let's go into the talk for today. So what we're actually going to do today, we will spend quite a bit of time on the agricultural trade profile for Canada, obviously, given that we're speaking to Lethbridge. But we also want to step back after filling in the data uh, to remind us of where we've been, clarify misconceptions about where we've been and where we're going, and set a foundation for looking ahead, uh, major issues in the year ahead. We'll approach this from a geographic point of view, looking at the major trade regions with which we engage, and then we'll also look at it on a thematic view, taking some of the uh, major issues that are not necessarily tied to a, a geographic trade partner. At the end, we'll offer some observations and thoughts for advocacy um, for where we need to pay attention. Uh, the, we're going to put a lot on the table up front, uh, really hit you hard with some numbers. But the second half of the presentation, we'll put some provocative questions um, and some provocative points to hopefully engender uh, those warm, lovely conversations I always have when I'm down in Lethbridge. So with that, we'll turn it over to Sharon, who will start walking us through the numbers. Thanks, Carlo. Um, so next slide on the overview. Um, it's my first time here presenting at the Southern Alberta Council, so thank you for having me. Um, I'll start by first looking uh, at an overview of the trade trend for Canada and more specifically for Western Canada, as well as some of the projections that we've done uh, in our recent project. Uh, then we'll focus more specifically on agricultural trade. So we've done extensive bodies of work on agriculture at Canada West with our recent work uh, that dives deep, that has a deep dive on agricultural trade issues. work on CPTPP and Japan with specific uh, low-level, sectoral-level opportunities and analysis that you can use. More specifically, we've identified new opportunities for agricultural exports uh, with Japan. So you can also take a look at that um, at, on our website. Next slide, please. So what you should have in front of you now is um, Canada's two-way trade with its largest trading partners over the last 24 years as a percentage share to Canada's trade with the world. So we have two axes actually. So on the left, you have everyone else. Uh, so all the key uh, partners for Canada is on the left. And then on the right, you have US uh, in blue. Um, so it's the blue line and it's also the axis on the right that is also blue. And the reason why we have two axes is because we see that U.S. continues to be the largest trading partner with Canada uh, with 
accounting for 63% of Canada's total two-way trade in 2019. Um, and so to be able to fit U.S. with the rest of the world, we had to really condense and provide two axes. But what's interesting here is looking at this blue line, uh, this blue line has slowly been leveling off over the last 24 years. U.S. has been decreasing at an average rate of 1% per year. On the other hand, trade with China, the orange line that you see, has steadily grown at an average rate of 12% over the last 24 years. And keep in mind that this is despite the political and other tensions that we've continuously had in different periods of time with China. Finally, I want you to take a note, um, uh, pay attention to the other key countries um, that that has two-way trade with China. And we see that they're quite, they're relatively stable, quite small and hasn't had, hasn't seen a significant growth over the last 24 years. Um, and so next slide. So the next slide we have is uh, breaking down the two-way trade and looking more specifically at Canadian export. Again, this is Canada's export to key markets over the last 24 years as a percentage share to total trade. U.S. is again on the right axis and everyone else is on the left. So what's interesting about this graph is that the majority is that is for the U.S. We see that there has been um, quite a decline in Canadian export, in Canadian overall export to the U.S., uh, since 2002, and there has been um, drastic and steady growth with oh, with China overall over the last 24 years. Of course, there are hiccups. For example, the majority of the decline between 2018 to 2019, as we know it, has mainly been due to agricultural export decline uh, from canola and soy. But overall, um, since China's accession to the WTO, uh, Canada's trade with China has been increasing compared to U.S. declining at an average rate of 2% since 2002. Of course, uh, U.S. is still our largest export partner, accounting for over 75% um, of Canadian export compared to only 4% with China. What else is interesting on this graph is UK, the gray line. So UK has grown quite significantly as well, um, all the way until 2012. And so the UK export or the Canadian export growth to UK is mainly due to precious metals and gold. So in 2019, UK's uh, or Canadian gold export to UK accounts for 72% of Canada's export to the UK. And so the decline since 2012 is clearly because of the drop of gold prices. Again, if we look at the other countries, there's not really particular growth in uh, markets such as Japan, Mexico, South Korea over the last, last 24 years compared to China and the US. So uh, I want you to take this graph in, in terms of the decline of the U.S., the blue line, and the, and the increase in China, the orange line. And if we were to look at the next slide, and we look specifically at Western Canada, 
Well, notice that Western Canada mirrors the overall Canadian export. So it has similar trends for both U.S. and China. The only exception for Western Canadian export uh, to the world compared to overall Canada export is that we don't see UK. Uh, UK for Western Canada only accounts for about 0.4% of Western Canadian uh, export to the world. And that's mainly because the majority of Canadian gold export to the UK is from Northern Ontario. Next slide. So now I want to bring your attention more specifically to agriculture. Next slide. So in front of you now, you should see um, Canadian agricultural export to uh, the top key markets in the world. We see that agriculture with the U.S. continues to grow and that U.S. is still Canada's largest market for about $38 billion or 56% of Canada's agricultural export goes to US. So this really shows the dependency issue that Canada, Canadian agricultural export has on the US. What's also interesting here is the orange line. So the growth uh, since China's accession to the WTO in 2001, uh, we've seen that there has been steep growth spurts in Canadian agricultural exports uh, to, to China, especially from 2014 all the way until 2018. And we know that from 2018 to 2019, the key factors that contribute to the, the export decline has been canola and soy. So it, this orange graph here, this drop in from 2018 to 2019, really shows the importance in addressing non-tariff barrier issues and other trade issues that Canada has with China on agriculture, particularly when we don't have any structural agreements in place like the ones that we do have with the U.S. under NAFTA. And that explains uh, the stability in the U.S. market and why we relies so significantly on the U.S. market in agriculture. Next slide. So we've identified um, more specifically in, for China, the, the, the Chinese drop from 2018 to 2019 is really due to three key exports, soybean, canola seeds, and canola oil. And we've shown you the numbers here in the percentage in, in the dollar amount decline and as well as the percentage decline. So we see 71% drop uh, between 2018 to 2019 in canola seed export and 98% decline in soybeans. So that's quite significant. Next slide. Of course, this decline impacted Western Canada the most because two thirds of our Canadian export or of our Canadian agricultural export comes from Western Canada. Next slide. But looking at the past trend, it does not tell the full story. If we were to pay attention to present and future projections, so looking at 2020 uh, from 2019, majority of Canadian export, uh, export to China has been recovered and it's mainly due to the recovery of agricultural export. And when we look at this graph here, um, the primary recovery is due to 
growth in animal products. So there's actually been increase from 2018 to 2019 to 2020 in animal product export. And we see recovery in vegetable products. And in the bar graph here, the orange, we see that Canadian exports mainly agricultural product, uh, sorry, vegetable products to China. So if we were to dive deeper, next slide, into the vegetable products, we'll notice that there's both growth and recovery. So there's growth in wheat export to China in 2020 for almost over a hundred percent increase, 122% increase in wheat export, as well as some growth in peas export. But still, this recovery in canola uh, is still not enough and doesn't match the all-time high export in 20, 2018. Next slide. And so if we were to look at canola more specifically, uh, Canada's canola export declined by almost $2 billion from 2018 to 2019. And we see that in 2019, Canada has attempted to replace this loss by increasing export to 10 major markets that is highlighted in blue in front of you. So including Pakistan, UAE, France, Australia, and so on. But despite this attempt to diversify our market, Canada was still about uh, $541 million short uh, in 2019. So this shows the difficulty in diversification and in replacing China. Further, most of these markets that we've increased exports to, such as Australia and UAE, are actually redirecting our canola exports to China. And so this picture really shows the evidence um, that direct export to China is much more beneficial to Canada and the difficulty uh, in replacing China as a market. So it further emphasizes um, the importance to address uh, trade and non-tariff barrier issues for agriculture with China. Uh, next slide. So this is particularly true when we look at future projections. So China is projected to be one of the largest consumers, actually the largest consumer in some of Canada's key agricultural exports. And that includes oil, seed, soybean, and protein meal in front of you, as well as, next slide, cereal, pork. Look at how much pork uh, China will be consuming in 2028 compared to the key markets, uh, other key markets for Canada, such as U, uh, the US and the EU, as well as vegetable oil. Next slide. Carlo, back to you. Thanks. So uh, I think for, for folks in southern Alberta, you, you guys managed to take uh, manufactured exports up 15% last year and ag uh, almost a 25 to 30% increase last year. So for your ag, uh, corridor, ag food corridor, looking at markets other than the U.S., um, you know, the prospects for you look good in key markets, especially, especially in China. We've got deeper details on Japan. I know you've also had several meetings with uh, 
investors and buyers from Japan, and, and you constantly are, are working the Japanese market. So we've got information on that to, to do the HS6 digit level. So a very, very product specific level. So you can find information there to really help. Um, just that Trevor and Aaron and the gang at Choose Lethbridge and Martin at the county are, are, are using that information. One quick note about our, our trade patterns. We, there's a lot of discussion in Canada about dependency um, and worries about dependency on China. You've seen the growth uh, in trade of, to China that we've just showed, especially agricultural trade. But if you were to compare the current export picture of the U.S. on the left with Canada's export picture for agriculture, you would have a fairly stark and sobering picture before you, which is what we have here. You can see on the left how diversified are U.S. agricultural exports. Under a third are here in North America, with the rest of the world taking up uh, more than a third and the other third spread out fairly well amongst countries, other countries. In Canada, it's a story of over-dependence on the U.S., um, with China increasing, but certainly uh, not the same weight um, that uh, the U.S. has counterbalancing other regions. So the question for Canada with this is um, one of, is it dependency or is it good luck to be selling to the U.S. market? You look at some of the other countries on the list, um, India, China, the EU, places where we've had trade issues, and the trade issues with the U.S. Um, are worrying and troublesome given the amount that we have there. But given the global picture, it's a real, it's a real question. Uh, I'm not posing this as a either or or making a recommendation or a suggestion. But this really brings into sharp relief the, the, the issue of where our agricultural trade is going. And for you guys especially, you know, the U.S. market's right next door. The connections with potato industry, cattle, others um, really have no other choice. And this explains, I think, part of the dependency. Anyway, I raise this just as a note, not as a recommendation. Next slide, please. On the issue of diversification, though, you know, especially with China, there's a lot of loose and really talk of no substance uh, for Canada about diversification. We have other markets. We just simply need to move uh, to other markets. There are two questions here. One, who is this we <laughs> that needs to move to other markets? Canada does not export or move products to other markets individual businesses do, ag trading houses, companies do. Individuals, consumers make decisions about which products they want to buy and how much they want to buy for them. We rely on market signals and free choice amongst private sector actors to determine trade flows. Of course, governments can intervene. Regulations can impede or slow the flow of goods. Serious measures like trade sanctions or embargoes can, of course, have a, a more profound impact. But overall, if you look at the history of softwood lumber, this private sector actor uh, and the freedom of private sector actors um, shows up 
uh, quite starkly. If we ever had one object lesson in the need to find new markets, it would be Canadian treatment uh, in the U.S. with softwood lumber. Uh, China's got a little ways to go to catch up to what the Americans, to build as long a rap sheet as what the Americans have done uh, to us with softwood lumber. Yet you look at the movement of um, Canadian softwood lumber exports, despite the millions of dollars spent on export promotion, on taking companies to other markets, despite the fact that the Americans um, took Canadian softwood lumber tariffs and instead of returning them to Canada, after you know the arbitration rulings that they were wrong to take the money, the Americans invested the money to grow the market in Mexico. They invited Canada to join and help them uh, grow the Mexican market. But after all this investment, all this work by the government, Canada remains the fourth largest source of softwood lumber uh, imports in Mexico, after the U.S., after Chile, after Brazil. So this, just, this story just speaks to the difficulties with diversification. And it's a caution to really push back on a lot of the easy talk uh, coming out of Ottawa that we simply just need to diversify. Who's the we that's going to be doing the diversifying? And if you do not have a command and control economy, how easy is it to really just simply pick up and move markets? A diversification, to some extent, is telling companies to operate against market signals. And we really have to think more clearly and harder about that in some of our policy responses on the trade front. Next slide. Now let's start talking about the less <laughs> numeric, the less dense part of the presentation and move into our, 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 our discussion of geographics. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and for those of you who have heard me speak before uh, down in Lethbridge, you'll notice the major difference in this presentation is, of course, sharing. Uh, you've never seen numbers. You've never seen numbers presented this clearly or, or this deeply uh, for me before. I'm generally too lazy to do it. But we've been really fortunate in Western Canada to have Sharon come and join us. Uh, stole her out of the PhD program at Carleton. And my friends back at the Carleton faculty are livid and threatening to come back and get her. But anyway, let's move on and talk about some of the geographic challenges we face. First, uh, with our friends in North America, on the macro level, for the country as a whole, you know, the thinking here is that Canada as a whole and all the regions of Canada will do better with the current change in the U.S. administration on the trade front. The improvement will be improvement in predictability, improvement in reliability, and lack of uncertainty um, in trade. With a U.S. executive, a president, who will not use the executive powers, the unilateral powers that the president has to declare emergency tariffs, national security tariffs, um, we will see an improvement in security uh, along the border. In other words, no more 2 a.m. tweets. Um, one thing we missed here in the, the Canadian side of the U.S. border was that I think back in July of last year, we woke up one morning to have the president threatening to impose a 5% tariff 
on every single item crossing the border from Mexico starting within like 48 hours. That's the extent of the power that the president has that we fortunately did not see, but unfortunately our, our, our neighbors further south did see. The removal of that will improve the environment uh, for trade and will allow things like investments in the food corridor uh, for greater certainty uh, with access to the U.S. However, not all regions of Canada will benefit as, as much as others. Other parts of the Biden uh, administration agenda may favor places like Cascadia or Toronto and eastern Canada a bit more. But the point is, every place will benefit, but some places may benefit more than others. For Western Canada, for you guys in particular, look, the improvement means we go back to the old relationship with the U.S., which means the same old irritants, as opposed to the extraordinary threats we faced under Trump. We get to go back to the normal threats. Country of origin labeling is not over. As I was told down in Big Timber, Montana, uh, I happened to bump into one of the guys, one of the ranchers who instigated uh, country of origin labeling. Uh, his comment to me was, son, you won the battle, you ain't won the war. So the forces for cool are not gone. Um, grain grading is another issue where the Americans will, I think, eventually come back um, for a renegotiation. If the price of grain moves to favor moving it to Canada, we're going to have complaints once again. Um, from my analysis, we're way offside with the old visual inspection of grain. There's science and there's the ability to use science to get hard numbers on grading grain. I think if we're ever challenged, we're going to be in a world of trouble on this. And it may help us to think now about getting ahead of potential challenges. The other issues for the West are, you know, uh, gridlock in Washington, D.C. We're not going to see the ability of Washington. Uh, the Republican agenda will be to stymie anything the Democrats do which will be worse than what we saw under the Obama years. So issues, smaller issues, issues that aren't central uh, to the national debate or aren't uh, in focus or have the attention of Ottawa and Washington are going to get lost. This means that we're really going to have to step up our engagement with Western governors. A lot of the issues that we face can be dealt with at the governor to premier level, and we really have to step up our ties. And we're doing work on trying to convince the premiers of Western Canada to simply attend the Western Governors Association meeting. Back east in Atlanta, Canada, the Atlantic premiers meet the New England governors every year. Out west, we're lucky if we show up at the Western Governors Association once every three years. Um, two years ago, the meeting was in Whitefish, Montana. You guys know Whitefish. You can drive there in a couple hours. The Alberta premier at the time declined to attend declined to attend a meeting of the Western governors to talk about the NAFTA renegotiation and working together. That has got to stop. The last bit of North America, Mexico. Look, uh, the Mexican administration has escaped attention only because Trump has been worse. Investment in Mexico right It's a good market for Canada. One more we've underperformed. Next slide. Sharon? Thanks, Carl.
Carlo. So in terms of China and what we should be paying attention to forward, uh, it's, it's the fifth plenum and the subsequent 14 five-year plan that is going to come out in March from the plenum. So essentially, the fifth plenum outlines the party's key economic and political political goals for the next five years as China enters a new development phase. So in this perspective, China is basically providing us with a concrete direction of where they're going and the five-year plan is going to show us how they're going to get there with specific policies that will be implemented for them to achieve their goals. Um, And so this is good for us in terms of increasing predictability and stability for Canada in terms of trade, inward investment, and also infrastructure activities. I've listed a couple examples of the priorities in the plenum that may be important for Canada. So one of them is technological self-sufficiency. And this was a response uh, from China to the U.S.-China trade war. We still have to wait to see what technological self-sufficiency really means uh, in the next five-year plan, but this will definitely have implications for agricultural technology and sea technology for Canada, for example. We also have the dual circulation, which includes both internal and and international focus. So uh, the dual circulation, the internal circulation, is basically China's strategy to expand domestic markets and demand to facilitate growth rather than its old model that relied heavily on exports. And the international circulation means using foreign trade and cooperation to facilitate the expanding of domestic markets. So this means that China will still be signing new agreements like the new EU deal that just happened and the recent uh, RCEP which is one of the largest regional agreements in the world. So China's aim to expand its domestic market demand and increase purchasing abilities means opportunities for Canadian export, provided that China doesn't put in measures that favors domestic suppliers over international suppliers, of course. But whether China puts in these measures or not, it'll be unlikely for China to supply and meet all of its domestic demands um, to be able to meet its domestic demands efficiently and affordably. Uh, This is particularly true for agriculture, which explains why China has included this international circulation and emphasize the importance of international cooperation and foreign trade. So this all presents new opportunities for Canadian exports, particularly agriculture. But in terms of the specific opportunities, we still need to wait and see, uh, wait until the five-year plan uh, comes out. So this is just a simple snapshot uh, of what the plenum and the five-year plan Uh, could mean for Canada, and I'm happy to go in depth during the Q&A. But our new project this year uh, looks specifically at this. We're planning to look into the specific impact that China's plenum and the new five-year plan has on Western Canadian trade to identify which sectors will be impacted and what existing trade challenges is likely to persist and continue uh, and what new challenges will arise between Canada and China from the new plan, as well as any opportunities 
to enhance existing and new trade and bilateral cooperation. Next slide. So you know, on China, it, it sounds uh, we're just glossing over exporting to China. We should just export to China. At Canada West, we spent the past year doing one of the deepest dives into Canadian agricultural trade. Huge amount of work we put forward to try and advance and change thinking in Canada in response to current um, current events with China. So this the, the, this focus on China again is backed by a thirty page report and a fifty page uh, statistical and technical appendix. Uh, if you have more questions, we're happy to talk about them, or we would suggest uh, taking a look at the report. Very quickly, issues on the rest of Asia. Uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that Sharon just mentioned is the largest uh, trade block on the planet right now, uh, obviously not including the World Trade Organization, but it covers about 30% of uh, global GDP and has two of Canada's three largest trade partners, India and China, oh, sorry, uh, Japan and China and several of Canada's uh, major trade competitors, Australia, New Zealand, and countries that we often talk about in terms of expanding uh, uh, exports, certainly with things like agricultural goods, Indonesia and others, uh, the ASEAN countries. The importance of this for Canada is that we're not part of this. Um, it's another trade block um, with, again, major markets and competitors. For commodity producers, the impact may be a bit less. Uh, building extensive supply and production chains, the major advantage of the agreement is less important for folks who are just shipping out raw commodities. But it, again, it's an important sign of us falling further behind in Asia, not having a long-term strategy, not making the long-term strategic, consistent, persistent investments and focusing um, on our, our, our key markets. Also of note with RCEP is that an agreement with Indonesia, uh, China, and the ASEAN countries could only succeed once they kicked India out. So for those thinking about trade negotiations with India, um, it's an indication of how difficult uh, those negotiations may be. On the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, you know, the question here is expansion. We've lost two countries, Chile and Peru. I don't see either one coming back uh, anytime in the near to midterm. The question is who's going to join next? Taiwan is up and it's eminently feasible that Taiwan could accede to the agreement. The other question though is who will join first, uh, China or the US, or will either join? Um, for the US to rejoin is going to be a difficult, difficult domestic fight in the U.S., and I'm not optimistic that that will happen soon. With the European agreement, we just need to note that um, the CETA agreement is in ways a lot like a trade agreement with Canada. There are things to which the federal government, in the case of the EU, Brussels, uh, signs off on to which all the provinces or states of the EU have to follow, and the things that fall under state or in the Canadian case, think provincial jurisdiction uh, that have to be passed at the individual state level. The majority of things like the tariff schedule in CETA are in effect. Those are signed off on Brussels. 
So by and large, for us, things that are important, um, those things have been signed off on by Brussels, and those parts of the agreement are in effect. So there's some confusion as to whether or not the agreement's in effect. Folks, it's the same confusion people have about Canada, <laughs> wondering something at the provincial, or being surprised at something at the provis provisional level, provincial level isn't in effect. This happened to the Americans with the NAFTA agreement when the provinces refused to sign on to the government procurement agreement, but the U.S. federal government signed on for the U.S. states. So we're seeing other we're seeing the same confusion that other countries have about us. Very quickly to close out on the thematic uh, issues. Um, uh, actually, I'll skip the the COVID slide and let's just go to the other issues slide. Uh, trade infrastructure. You know, this is a place where we put in seven years of work at Canada West. Um, we're at the point now of making recommendations to the government on how to improve our trade infrastructure, not just financing, but the intelligence and the data that allows you to make decisions about how to finance and long-term planning. We do not do this. We did this with the Asia Pacific Gateway, but in the intervening decade, we've forgotten how to do this. Countries like Australia have picked this up. The UK have picked up this model. So we're looking to port this knowledge to Canada, but it's a dire situation. Our customers abroad are telling us that they do not have confidence in the reliability of our trade infrastructure to deliver goods to markets. Our rankings in the World Economic Forum and at the World Bank Logistics and Supply Index have fallen off a cliff in the last year. This is a situation that needs desperate attention, but is not receiving it from Ottawa. Luckily, we're working with the Business Council of Canada, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, Westac, and others to take our research to the Western premiers and also to the federal government. Internal trade, expect to see major push on internal trade this year. We're again working with that same set of actors, the Business Council, the Chamber, and others, um, putting forward a, a major push to liberalize internal trade, including for the first time, looking at what to do with those Very quickly, priorities and priority slide, the next slide. For Alberta and the West, we need to really, as I mentioned, step up having the premiers talk to Western governors. We're laying out an agenda and strategy and mechanisms for doing that. Um, Edmonton needs to finish the government reorganization. And you know we really need to push the feds on trade infrastructure. Next slide. For the feds, again, trade infrastructure. And the last point, we really need a Canadian China strategy. And for those of you who export heavily to China, this is key. The discussion in Washington right now has us leaning more towards an American strategy towards China, a strategy of supporting the Americans and their engagement and their fight with China, not on advancing Canadian interests. You know, with the U.S.-China Phase 1 agreement, the Americans essentially shivved us in the back once again. During the NAFTA negotiations, we were told to, in no uncertain terms, not to even think about talking to China. Two months after the negotiations end, what do we have happen? The Americans tell us, oh, by the way, we've just signed an agreement with China that basically puts a knife into the back of Canadian farmers. This was a situation in the 1950s. Uh, 
the Americans told Canada not to sell grain to China during its greatest famine, a famine when tens of millions of people died. At the same time, the Americans were taking other grain markets away from Canada and Europe and other parts of, of the globe, taking them away with unfair trade practices, using development assistance and other things. The Diefenbaking government of the day told the Americans in no uncertain terms we were not going to follow their embargo. Canadian interests dictated that we do sell grain to China, that we do compete with the Americans. The point is, we work with the Americans on security issues. During the Cold War, we were by their side. But where our interests diverged, we defended Canadian agricultural interests. We've got to get back to the, the logic and the common sense uh, that guided us during the Diefenbaker era. And that's the push for a Canadian strategy on China. And really, we need voices in the West. We need agricultural voices um, to be aware of that history and to, to look forward in, in how we articulate Canadian interests and make sure that those interests are defended. Again, we've done the deeper work on how to engage Canada can engage China on agriculture to back that. So that takes us to the end. Last slide, please. Uh, thanks again. We've gone long, but those who have heard me speak down there would be shocked, absolutely floored, if we hadn't gone long. But we look forward to your questions. Uh, we really do look forward to the point in time where we can see each other again, um, gather at two guys, have pizza and beer, uh, one of my favorite things to do down in Bridge City. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you both for this wonderful presentation. And um, I will jump right into questions because we've got 15 minutes left. So the first question comes from uh, Timothy at the Lethbridge Herald. Oh, hey, Tim. Um, and Timothy asks, agriculture is one aspect of the relationship with China, but we still have two Canadians being held essentially hostage. We have punitive trade sanctions on ag over politics. There's a strong distrust. How can we focus on trade with these issues still ongoing? So the answer is we have to. The reality is trade with China is growing. Uh, sharing can toss out the exact percent uh, year on year. Again, we have a reality on the ground that Canadian businesses are making decisions to increase trade. Canadian consumers are making decisions to increase trade. We have to be able to mine both sides of the relationship at the same time. If you look at the Australians and New Zealand, Australia faces the same sort of punitive measures. They don't have folks held hostage, which China has done to us um, other times in the past as well. But yet, Australia's managed, while fighting even more serious economic sanctions, has just signed RCEP. New Zealand has also signed the Regional Comprehensive Agreement with China. The EU is facing sanctions and is fighting with China, but they managed to just sign uh, an investment agreement. You have to be able to manage both sides of the relationship at once. And the Americans, a trade war bordering on a hot war, yet they've managed to sign a phase one trade agreement. Everyone else has figured out how to manage both sides of the relationship at the same time. It's only in Canada where we seem to be drawn up short by this. Look, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the hostages and the security situation, simply because everyone else in their dogfighter in Canada is. 
there is no room to add to that debate. But the other Spanish and the other side uh, of the relationship, there is scant attention, scant discussion. And so at Canada West, we've chosen not to follow everyone else in a crowded field where there is more than enough commentary and thinking, but instead to focus on an area where there is little information and little creative thinking, but that is still very important to us. Okay, um, Sharon, do you want to comment on that or should we move to the next question? I think we can move to the next question. Okay. Um, our next question is from Knut Peterson. Leftbridge is home to Richardson Oil Seeds, who processes canola seed into oil. Arguably, Canada should be selling many more processed products rather than raw material. Your thoughts, please. Good point, Nude. You know, the issue for us has been distance from market. Um, the greatest advantage we have in this is with plant protein. Um, you know, canola oil, the demand for it in the States uh, makes sense. China, uh, when our canola seeds weren't taken to China, they wound up in Dubai, where the UAE crushed them and sold the oil um, to, to, to China. So it's certainly a good market. But plant protein. And Trevor and the folks that choose Lethbridge are heavily involved in plant protein. But this is one processed good where it makes sense to process at source rather than at end destination. So plant protein is a great opportunity. But unfortunately, Alberta hasn't had the same focus on this as has Saskatchewan and certainly as has Manitoba, which is why we haven't seen um, the investments come to Alberta. I think eventually they will, and that's the best opportunity, I think, for us. Someplace where it really makes sense. We've got unique assets in terms of plant protein. We've got the best science for it, and we could really do a lot more in the non-soy, non-soy plant protein space. Yes, I absolutely agree with Carlo and also uh, with Nud. I think what's important when it comes to diversification we often think about or talk about market diversification but we also need to consider product diversification increasing in our product portfolio uh, when we looked at the uh, tensions that we had with china and the decline in canola seed and soy uh, um, export in 2020, we see a tremendous growth in canola oil. Uh, so that is a signal for us in terms of diversifying our product portfolio. And also in our TPP work in terms of identifying new opportunities uh, with Japan, we've actually calculated and did identify some new sectors uh, that we don't often export to Japan, that we see um, tremendous growth opportunity. So definitely check out our report on that. And uh, just a quick note, you know, Coaldale and the Greenhouse, we're going to beginning a, a major research project looking at creating a new type of greenhouse industry in Alberta based on carbon sequestration, not the other way around, creating the greenhouse and then trying to figure out how to get carbon to it. But that's, I think, a huge opportunity for Alberta and another place where it makes sense to process at source because of the waste heat and because of the CO2. 
So that's uh, something you can look for us. And we've got to get down to Coaldale uh, to see the folks over there to, to look at what they're doing to inform that work. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, uh, a quick comment from Beth Mundell. Nice to see the U.S. Oval Office background, especially after Biden's confirmation yesterday. Um, and then the next... Oh, I, I forgot I had that. Yeah. <laughs> the next um, question comes from Karen uh, Tuhi. Um Oh, sorry, Mark Goodall. The next question comes from Mark Goodall. Sorry about that, Mark. Um, do you think that China could ever reach food food self-sufficiently. Presently, their agriculture is very labor-intensive, which is needed to enable employment. In Canada, it is the opposite, which gives us the advantage. We are highly mechanized. And yes, I'll place. let Sharon take... Oh, I'll let... Yeah. From what they're doing. I think that China can get to the point where they produce more. I think wheat and some other crops, they are there. But they'll always need swing supply. Um, bad, bad harvest, famine, uh, flooding. We saw this in the past year, the damage from the flooding and the impact on crops. So self-sufficiency defined in terms of always needing emergency supplies, swing supplies in response to serious, serious natural disasters that put a serious dent uh, in domestic production. I think there'll always be a role for secure, um, secure, reliable uh, swing suppliers to come in. But Sharon? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the dual circulation really reflects this well. Um, again, China is only so large geographically, they're restricted by their natural endowment and natural resources. And that's the reason why they are investing so much on uh, technology advancement in order to increase their yield. And But at the same time, they know that um, they know that it will not be able to fully uh, accommodate or meet their domestic demand. And that's where the international circulation comes in. Um, as Carlo mentioned, swing producers, they need, um, they need external import uh, to meet their demand, domestic demand efficiently and affordably. So in this perspective, uh, we've also in our last China report in addressing uh, non-tariff barrier issues with China, we've identified and calculated uh, quantitatively why Canada is a good swing producer in terms of reliability, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of reliability after you've taken into consideration of domestic consumption um, as well as import. So, so from this perspective, I think there is lots of opportunity still for Canadian agricultural export to China. Yeah, that work was essentially a lot of countries produce a lot more than Canada, but they also eat a heck of a lot more of what they produce before it gets to port. So one bad yeah. harvest in the country, one disaster and their ability to, to meet your needs if you're China suddenly called into question. So the Brazils, the Canadas, the Australias of the world, the handful of countries that can really give you assurance that they'll have enough to meet your needs uh, suddenly become more important. Exactly. Uh, excellent. Our next question comes from Trevor Page. 
COVID-19 has doubled numbers of hungry people in the world to 270 million. Are you lobbying the federal government to buy Western grain to contribute to the World Food Program? Uh, no, we are not. That's not uh, that's not the focus of of the work that we're doing. You know, in terms of the buying surplus grain to feed, you know, there remains grain production um, around the globe. And the trick with development assistance is you want to not do additional harm to local markets. So where grain is available in regional markets, you want to move grain from regional markets to enable regional farmers and regional businesses to not be wiped out by cheap imports. So the first priority, I know this isn't going to be popular for, for some folks out there, but Public Law 480 and the disaster that was sending U.S. excess uh, agricultural exports abroad has taught a lesson to the international development community. And the orthodoxy now is that you do not use development assistance to undermine regional markets and the damage that's done uh, to relieve domestic problems. Of course, you know, if there's a famine, uh, a desperate situation, and regional markets can't meet it, then you step up. But you do not use development assistance to alleviate domestic problems and cause worse problems elsewhere around the globe. Sorry. Okay, our next question, well, I, the next one is a comment, but then another person has a question on it. So I'm just gonna read the whole thread. And um, the comment is from David R. Byrne, uh, P-N-W-E-R, Continental Strategy is the unifier. And then David Hill says PNWER does have strong relationships with the Western Governors Association and has many working groups that are addressing these cross-border economic issues. Um, Carlo, I'm interested in the role of increasing middle-class income in Asia and consumer behavior, how this that might drive consumption and export opportunities for Western agriculture, Canadian Western agriculture. I'll let, I'll, I'll let Sharon take that second question. In regards to the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, Penware, P-N-W-E-R, Penware. You know, Penware is a one means of engaging the Americans. But if you look to our left and right in Cascadia, uh, in the Council of the Great Lakes, the Atlantic Governors, uh, and premiers, you have head of government to head of government meetings. You have meetings focused on economic competitiveness with the private sector there. Penware, the U.S. Council of State Governments, also exists. The equivalents exist in these regions, but they've built an additional mechanism to bring the heads of state together to do things that groups like Penware can't. So Penware is necessary but it is not enough. It is not complete. Um, we do not have the ties, the strategic, long-term, persistent ties at the head of government level uh, working on regional issues that other regions do. So, yes, I'm a huge fan of Penware, but, you know, Penware exists between British Columbia and Washington, and yet they've created something new <laughs> to be able to, to enable the region to solve uh, problems and they brought in the heads of government to do it. Same thing in the Council of the Great Lakes. The Atlantic provinces also have the U.S. Council of State Governments, New England. 
but they've created something on top of that, and that's what we're missing. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, guys. Sharon. Uh, sure. So in regards to the middle class growth in Asia question, um, that's something we actually had a slide in there that uh, that broke down by geographic region in terms of population growth and what's also the, in terms. What's the number of that uh, slide so I could show it to our listeners? So actually we removed it because oh. we had so many slides, but okay. I could just talk about it briefly. So we, um, so we had numbers that by 2050, um, you know, Africa will be the largest cons uh, population in the, it will be the region with the largest population in the world. Um, but when we look at Asia, we see China and India following very close second and third after the continent of Africa. So when we look at country level, China and India will be the largest consumers in the world. And then if we were to think about market stability and predictability, China really outperforms India on this front. And coupled with their new plan on increasing per capita GDP growth. So we don't actually know the numbers yet in terms of what China wants to achieve. But given the past history, of their goals and how they've achieved above and beyond their goal, um, I think there will be lots of opportunity in the Chinese market for agricultural consumption. And then the second thing is also the recent signing of RCEP and how that will integrate the region and opening up the market. Which, so that really emphasizes the importance of the CPTPP for Canada uh, in terms of increasing the supply chain integration into the Asia Pacific market. So I think on that note, uh, one of our key messages is diversification is quite Are you able to hear me? Yes, you just yeah. cut out for a minute. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I got cut out. Yeah. yeah. So I was just saying that diversification is quite important for Canada, especially with the growing Asia Pacific market um, that we are seeing that will that are that is to come, but also in terms of addressing some of the key trade issues with China, as China will be the largest market in the region. Excellent. Um, our, I'm aware that we're a little over one o'clock. We have two more questions. Are you able to stay on for those two questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, our one question comes from Knut Peterson. With today's greenhouse technology, Canada could easily become self-sufficient in many of the farm produce currently imported from the U.S. and others. How may that affect overall trade as we know it today? So, you know, Newt's right in the direction of that question. The, the devil, as I say, is always in the details. Uh, we certainly have the potential with the generation of CO2, uh, with waste heat, with land, uh, with trade infrastructure, uh, Edmonton Airport, for example, versus trying to get produce to greenhouse uh, from greenhouses to YVR or Vancouver. There certainly are intriguing advantages, but we have to do the hard work, uh, as we did with the plant protein opportunity at Canada West, in figuring out uh, whether this opportunity uh, turns out to be 
doable, whether it's viable. So that's the work that's going to come ahead. On the trade front, certainly, uh, if we could get agricultural self-sufficiency, replace supplies from the Imperial Valley and places in California where production is predicted to decline in the coming decades due to, um, due to, uh, due to climate issues. Uh, also, the Americans are the nastiest fight in NAFTA is not over dairy, it's over seasonal agricultural produce between the U.S. and Mexico. So certainly moving to become more self-sufficient in those areas would be beneficial. Uh, it also opens up markets such as Japan, uh, moving laboratory, what are essentially laboratory quality fruits and vegetables to places like Japan. Shipping lettuce without a side of E. coli um, is an advan potential advantage for us. Uh, to markets uh, that will pay more for, again, laboratory quality fruits and vegetables. And when you think of hydrogen, the most pure form of CO2 you get is from hydrogen production. If you could build in a greenhouse strategy to capture and use CO2 with hydrogen produ production, turn it from a liability in hydrogen production into an asset with hydrogen production, then a place like Alberta has even more intriguing possibilities. But this is a research uh, we'll be getting underway um, in a couple of weeks here. We have a message from the Community Foundation of Lethbridge in southwestern Alberta. Can I please get the information regarding the Coaldale Greenhouse? If possible, please send me the contact or information to research at cflsa.ca. So that's a message. I would say contact. Contact Aaron um, at Choose Lethbridge or contact uh, Trevor or I think Martin Herbal at the county. Any of the folks uh, that are, I think, listening to this or down in Lethbridge should be able to get that information to you. Excellent. We have one other comment by David Burns. Polar strategy for export cost advantages. That's the comment. <laughs> um, so... Um, thank you both very much for joining us today. Um, before we end the session, do you have a take-home message for our viewers today? Let Sharon go first here. Uh, sure. Um, I just want to emphasize again the importance of diversification for Canada, especially with the growth that we will be seeing in Asia Pacific. But while diversification is important in both market and in product portfolio, uh, we can't avoid our two largest and richest markets uh, in the world, which is US and China. So we need to continue to engage and address trade issues with both of these countries, particularly uh, with China, because we do not have any structural agreements place aside from the investment agreement. Um, and so in, on the trade front, in terms of keep engaging with China, um, agriculture and food security is particularly a good starting point because it is a shared interest for both countries, particularly uh, in the post-COVID environment. Yeah, so my take home message is just one of encouragement and, and support. You've got a really good economic development and trade team down there in, in Southern Alberta. I keep talking about Trevor and the folks at Choose Lethbridge, uh, Pete Casarelli at uh, Grow South, 
Martin Herbal at the county. You've got a good group of people. You're bringing in foreign delegations. You know, you've been out talking to the Japanese, talking to the Chinese, convincing the buyers that you will get goods to them, that you do care about uh, about products. That's advice is just a little word of appreciation and uh, respect for the for the work that. Uh, you guys are doing down there excellent thank you and thank you everybody for tuning in uh, I know uh, Skype caught us out a few times there so I'm sorry for the Skype issues that we're having today but um, I hope you'll join us next week with um, Abby Morning Ball on the topic of a mile in my moccasins um, thank you very much and see you next week thanks everyone yeah, thanks to the city of Lethbridge for the support.